You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Good morning, Mission Creek Alliance Church. How we doing? Good, glad. Good to be back here with you this morning. My name's Carmen. Um, I've been here before. Uh, it's, this uh, is my home church. And so yeah, I serve in the role of uh, executive director at Kelowna's Gospel Mission, and every once in a while I get to sneak away and come here and play at Preacher when Keith lets me. Um, so thanks for welcoming me here this morning. Uh, you know, last time I was here, We, uh, Keith asked me to preach about Bathsheba. Yeah, and uh, do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> I called King David a rapist from the stage, started a little mini Me Too movement, and we, a bunch of us all cried together. It was a good time. Yeah, it was a good time. Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, um, today isn't that exciting. Uh, maybe I got too saucy last time, uh, because this time Keith gave me Galatians 2 to preach on. Can you believe that? Galatians 2, and not like the whole thing, like specifically verses 1 to 10. Now, I'm going to be honest with you folks, Galatians 2 is not my favorite chapter in the Bible. Actually, it does not even make top 1,000. And um, yeah, I had to Google how many chapters there were in the Bible to make that joke. (laughs) Now, Galatians 2, it's not my favorite. And the reason why is because all it is is Paul defending himself to the church in Galatia. I mean, he's re-explaining to them the, the fact that the gospel doesn't require people to be circumcised. And if him telling them that isn't enough, you know, he went and he met with all the other top church leaders and they all agreed in this circumcision-free gospel that Paul was preaching just fine. And Jesus doesn't require us to continue to uphold Jewish traditions and laws no matter what those other false teachers tell you. That's, that's what it says. Here, I'll show you. <clears throat> then 14 years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas and Titus who came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I'd been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that they were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. (sighs) We'll keep going. Even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones, really, who were secretly brought in. This is where it starts to get interesting. So they sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me, for God has no favorites. Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and just as he'd given Peter the responsibility to preaching to the Jews. 
For the same God who worked through Peter as an apostle of the Jews also worked through me, the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. That's it. That's the text. So being an apostle is like being a gardener. You go around, you're tilling the ground. That's the good hard work, confronting people. The prophets like the tilling the ground work. Now, then there's planting, you know, telling the good message for people who've never heard it before about Jesus and the gospel. That's the fun part, seeing people become awake and alive to this new message, seeing it transform lives. That's the planting. But then there's a part of gardening that I don't enjoy at all, and that's weeding. There's a part of being an apostle that you can till the ground, you can plant the seeds, you can water them, but then you have to go back and you have to weed the beds and you have to pull up all the stuff that's grown there that's not supposed to be. Now, Paul did a lot of tilling, planting, watering, but the book of Galatians, he's just weeding. That's it. And I hate weeding. It takes work and it's annoying. So instead of talking about how awesome the gospel is, you spend a lot of time explaining to people what it isn't and what they have wrong, and you spend a lot of time telling people to get along and stop fighting, and even Jesus got sick of it. Several times you see him get annoyed in scripture and say things like, how much longer do I have to put up with you when his disciples just weren't getting it and were misunderstanding things? But here we are, Galatians 2. So we're going to do some weeding this morning. Now, what were we weeding? So there's this dangerous teaching that was growing in the church of Galatia that Paul needed to uproot quickly. And the reason why he needed to uproot it quickly is because it threatened to choke out the true message of the very heart of the gospel. And that's the message of radical, undeserved grace. And we see Paul is ruthlessly and passionately weeding in verse four and five, right? But we refuse to give in for a single moment. We want to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So imagine Paul is out gardening the churches and he sees little seeds growing all around him. They pop to the surface and there's a little flower that pops to the surface and he goes and looks at it and it says, care for the poor. And he goes, oh, that's nice, that's nice. And he waters it. He smiles and he looks and there's a beautiful flower over here and he goes up and it says, love for he first loved us. And he goes, yeah, that's nice. That's growing nicely. He smiles. There's a lovely bush called hospitality that's growing in the corner that he's going to go and fertilize later. And then he sees this one little green sprout pop up, this beautiful little white flower on it. And he goes up and it looks lovely. He gets closer and he says, what is this? And on it, it says, get circumcised. And he's like, wait, what? <laughs> what is this doing here? This doesn't belong. And so he takes this weed and he starts to pull on it. But that little flower is deceptive. It stays firm. Paul pulls and pulls and pulls and realizes that this little weed is connected to a massive, deep network of root systems underneath the soil. This root system runs very, very deep and wide, and it's called legalism. Legalism simply defined is what exists when people attempt to secure rightness with God by doing good works, good deeds, instead of by faith and grace alone. Now, it's a tricky 
nasty root system that comes down to a core belief that grace, yeah, it surely can't be enough. But that to be in the Jesus Club, you also have to follow this moral set of laws, religious laws. Now, Paul saw this legalism crop up, and so he became vigorous, absolutely determined, relentless in digging and uprooting it. He had to. Now, this root system, it didn't just grow beneath the ground uh, in Galatia. Now, Jesus himself had a heck of a time confronting this over and over and over again, battling the same network of subterranean root beliefs when he spent his time here on earth. Mark 7, as opposed to Galatians 2, is actually one of my favorite <laughs> bits of scripture. I like it because Jesus gets annoyed and I find it really relatable. <laughs> So in Mark 7, uh, Jesus is talking about inner purity. It says that he's hanging out with these Pharisees who are the religious leaders, the elite of the time. So one day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrive from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And they notice that some of the disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. Now the Jews, especially the Pharisees, did not eat until they had poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of the many traditions that they have clung to, such as the ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old traditions? They eat without first performing a hand-washing ceremony. And Jesus replied, rather strongly, you hypocrites! <laughs> I like it because it feels like an overreaction to like an honest question. But it was, you hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They, their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law, and you substitute it for your own traditions. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. Little later down, Jesus called a crowd to come and hear. And he said, all of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. Now, Jesus is doing some aggressive weeding here. Luke 7 shares another time where he does some weeding, and this is actually, he does this in parallel to one of my very most favorite portraits of Jesus that we find in scripture. Luke 7, when Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman, starting verse 36, tells a story again, Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of religious leaders. He's in a Pharisee's house for a dinner party. Jesus went to his home, sat down and eat, when a certain immoral woman from the city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. It tells us that then she knelt down beside him, cracked that jar open. She wept and washed his feet with her tears. She cried over his feet broke that jar of perfume open, the aroma filled the whole house. She anointed his feet with perfume, she continued to weep and wash. 
It was quite the scene. But when the Pharisee who was invited in saw this, he said to himself, if this were a prophet, a real prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts and said, Simon, I love sinners. Well, he said, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one from whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he returned to the woman and he said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer to wash my feet or dust my feet, but she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she's shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only a little love. And then Jesus turned and said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And then Jesus, ignoring them still, continues to speak to the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, Jesus had to deal with the same legalism, the same annoying weeds that Paul did all the time. If it wasn't about circumcision, it was about hand washing. If it wasn't about hand washing, it was about who you went to dinner with or who you let touch you. And if it wasn't about who you went to dinner with and who you let touch you, it was about picking grain on the Sabbath or healing on the Sabbath. There's example after example. Different day, same story, and it all links back to that one big, nasty, bad root belief. As surely it can't be as simple as grace, and we have to follow a moral law in order to be acceptable to God. Surely we must have to do something to deserve this kingdom, this gospel that the Father was offering and that Jesus was pointing to. You see, when we read Paul's letter in Galatians, we must remember that whatever the religious law was, whatever the issue of the day was, that's not the point. Religious law changes as culture changes. What's considered to be acceptable differs culture to culture, age to age, and house to house. Anybody who has been married, or moved in with a roommate, or adopted kids, or merged two families, you understand that the way that you are raised and the way that you are grown up gives you an inherent set of beliefs around what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Two words, toothpaste tube. Mm -hmm. I squish it in the middle. <laughs> no regrets. <laughs> Everybody has a different idea of what's acceptable and not acceptable from every, every small little detail of our lives to big, giant, moral dilemmas. 
You see this uh, underlying root belief that grace can't actually be free. It festers and grows like crazy under the surface, but then it pops up above the surface, and it looks different everywhere you go, throughout scripture, history, and our own lives. It always sounds different. That little flower that pops up, it might not say, get circumcised, but it's gonna say something else. Now I'm gonna take this moment right now to take my little preacher mobile and take a quick detour, okay? Because I mentioned something in passing about 45 seconds ago that I think maybe some people might get stuck on, so I wanna address that so that we can move on because I wanna get to the real point. So here's this. I said just a few moments ago that what's considered acceptable, the religious law, what's considered right and wrong, changes throughout history. Now, when somebody first told me that, that what's considered right and wrong changes with time, I was super offended. I stood up and I was like, God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And the word is the word, and you can't add a single word and and stroke from it. It is the same and unchanging. Oh, boy. I'm aware that just like I had been, on that day, you might be irked by my blasé statement that right and wrong change. So to prove my point about how what's considered to be good or bad from a religious point of view, what's considered acceptable from a Christian point of view has evolved over time, depending on location and place in history. We don't have to look farther than Western culture on the topic of sex in the past 100 years. The past 100-year church history in the West, we have had only four decades ago thousands of Christians holding big, angry signs, protesting interracial marriage because there was a deeply, broadly held belief that because the Bible tells us so, that a black person and a white person together was sin. Commonly held church belief only a few short decades ago. A few decades before that, we had Christians holding signs talking about the scripture, the sacredness of reproduction, and in the name of Jesus, blowing up post office buildings, because inside those post office buildings, there was literature on safe sex. Did you know that the church successfully outlawed, like made illegal, it went to the Supreme Court in the United States, they made it illegal to distribute information about contraception in the name of Jesus because the Bible clearly said that that was a sin. Just a few short decades ago. Now these are just a few examples to reflect on, and they're a bit strange and a bit ridiculous because in both those areas, the church has moved quite significantly. Something that was such an issue and considered to be sin, we now look back and go, hmm, maybe those are man-made traditions. 
Now, the point being whether it's circumcision, interracial marriage, or in more current times, the key issue of the day, you can fill in the blank. We've always had a religious stance on what's proper and acceptable when it comes to these things. And we've always spent a lot of time talking about it and arguing about it as well. Now, if you think that the church has changed its mind a lot on the topic of sex and reproduction, just wait till I tell you the history of the church's stance on women's hair. Yeah. Or, or men wearing makeup. That has ping-ponged back and forth. Like, anyway. I bring this up because I don't want to preach a sermon today about how you don't need to be circumcised anymore. It's no longer relevant. Circumcision is no longer our religious law of what is acceptable. So the issue that pops up to the surface when legalism is in our hearts is different now. I repeat, every individual comes comes with inherited understanding of moral good and bad, determined by culture, family, early childhood experiences. So depending on who you are, where you're with, how you were raised, what your inherited moral code is, if you have this deep inner belief that says grace is not enough, you're gonna have different issues popping above the surface in your life, demanding that you live a certain way. It's gonna say, do this or don't do that. Sit with this person, don't sit with this person. Don't let them touch you. It's probably no longer a message that says, go get circumcised or make sure to wash your hands. But the question I'm gonna get us to contemplate later is what is that message for you? Since the time of the book of Galatians was written and carried about on horseback across the country, the church has constantly confused upholding current religious law with being synonymous with the Christian way of life. But the message that Paul has to remind the Galatians about and that I'm here to remind you about today is that the Christian way of life was never about living up to a moral code. It was never about what you do or what you don't do or what you say or don't you say or who you sleep with or how you do your hair or if you put on makeup. You see, the way of Christ has always been about grace. It's always been about grace. Without any qualifiers or disqualifiers, the gospel is about grace. The way into the Jesus Club is about grace. It is by grace alone that I am saved, for freedom I was set free. Let me say this so clearly, it was never about doing what is, what, what is acceptable or good. It was always about being accepted whether you are good or not. By grace alone, by grace alone, by grace alone, by grace alone. We are made right with God by grace alone. We are adopted to be sons and daughters of God by grace alone, by grace alone. Ooh, I heard that. Did you hear that? You hear that giant subconscious scream go across the room? I heard it, it went, but! 
but it's not that simple. But we still have a duty. But there's still righteousness. But, but what about, yes. I know. I hear that. Because I hear it in myself. It turns out that this message by grace alone is really, really hard to accept. There's something inside of us all that rejects the message that we can be saved by grace alone. Now, I'm not pointing my fingers at all the Galatians and going, ha, bunch of idiots. They didn't get it. They're all trying to be good and acceptable when it's all about grace. No. I relate to it. These roots, this belief system that surely it can't be as simple as accepting grace. Surely we have to earn it, achieve it, contribute to it somehow. These roots go tectonic plate deep level in my heart. Because you see that message of grace for all is so extraordinary. It's so radical then it can be excruciating. It rubs against something deep inside of us that wants so desperately to earn salvation, to do the right things, to live a certain way in order to earn the kingdom. And this is why I am so grateful for the mentorship of immoral women in my life. See, in order to truly accept the true gospel, preserve the true gospel message of grace, lovingly, lavishly poured out for all, we must first confront the brutal facts that there's nothing we can do to deserve it anyway. And once we accept how undeserving we are of this lavish gift, only then can we truly accept it as a gift. And nobody understands the undeservedness of grace more than people who have deep regrets. I was out with the Kelowna Gospel Mission outreach team last summer serving lunch at the Queensway bus loop when I met a woman, an immoral woman, who reminded me of the one in the Luke 7 story. She was sitting there on the cement on a hot summer day still wearing a hospital gown. She had a port for an IV still in her arm, wristband on. And she was there at the Queensway bus loop because she had run away from the hospital because the pull to get her next fix was stronger than the pain in her leg from a very obvious, fairly nasty infection. After giving her some soup and she found out that I was from the gospel mission. She got all excited, and she asked if I would sit and if I would pray with her. I said, yeah, you bet. We sat together, closed my eyes, and she prayed. And she took me to church. She cried as she thanked her father, for his deep, unconditional love for her. And when I opened my eyes again and I looked into hers, I saw that they were teary and shining, 
She was shining with an understanding of unconditional love to a depth that I don't know. Those who are forgiven much, love much. I'm reminded of Jesus' words when he said, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick. I'm a fairly healthy person. That's why I go and hang out with the sick. Because that's where I find him. It's with them that I see the power of the love of God the most. And so that's where I want to be. They help me to daily pour a giant dose of weed killer on those plants that shoot up in me, that make me, tempting me to think that the good news is something that requires something of me, other than to simply receive the free gift of grace. They remind me that grace is amazing. It's amazing. Nobody knows the grace of God like those who are acutely aware that they can't earn it. I think Paul was one of them. I think Paul was acutely aware. Paul was the man who held deep and painful regrets. The man who persecuted the church relentlessly, remember? Killing friends and family members of those that he now calls brother and sister. Yeah, this was a man with regrets. No wonder he was sent to preach to the Gentiles instead of the Jews. I think it would be difficult. I think Paul had deep regrets. Paul, a man with blood on his hands, understood on a deep level the power of undeserved grace. And so that's why he would say so adamantly here in Galatians, no, no, we refuse to give in for a single moment. We're going to preserve the truth of the gospel for you. The truth of the gospel message being this, that there's no set of laws you can follow that will qualify you for the family of God. You are welcome by the free gift of grace to become a child of God. Let me read it again like this. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Christian regulations. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their white Western reg regulations. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their 2022 ethical understanding of goodness regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. For we wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. But. Now we're going to be going through Galatians for a while now. I'm going to leave it to Keith to deal with all the buts. <laughs> Love you, buddy. <laughs> but the portion of scripture that I was given specifically deals with Paul's resolute refusal to strip the gospel of grace from its power for a single moment to the idea that grace is something to be earned. And do you know why it's important to get this right? Do you know why it's so important that we pull those roots right up from the very tectonic deep level?
because legalism always ends in violence. Because legalism always ends in people getting hurt. A woman at a dinner party being rejected, condemned, excluded. Legalism ends in protesting interracial marriage, excluding whole swaths of people by racism. Legalism ends in blowing up post office. Legalism always ends up hurting somebody. Isn't that just the exact opposite of what the gospel is supposed to do? Bad theology kills. So this is where I leave you to ponder until next time with a challenge for you to listen to Paul's relentless commitment to continuously, vigorously weeding out your heart so that the power of the true gospel would be preserved. Where do these shoots of legalism pop up in your life? What does it sound like when it comes to the surface? Where are the weeds trying to strip away the power of the gospel of grace from your life? and from those around you. Let's take a moment to pray together and contemplate exactly this, because I think it's important. If you want to just shut your eyes. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and move in our midst. God, would you open up our eyes to be able to see where legalism has maybe taken root, where we've sacrificed your will for the sake of our own traditions. Will you take a moment to reveal places where legalism has popped above the surface and caused us to do harm? Because God, we don't want to do harm. Why don't you take a moment to just imagine yourself walking through a garden. It's a beautiful, beautiful summer day. Early summer. Spring flower is still out. And as you walk through your garden, you notice all the different plants growing around you. Some are beautiful. Some need some help. And you walk around a corner and and there you see him. Ah, you see the father. And he's out for a walk in the garden as well. The two of you meet up. He wraps you in a huge hug. You feel peace in your heart as soon as you're with him. He invites you to walk through the garden with him. And so the two of you walk. 
And he points out a particular tree that's beautiful and growing wonderful fruit. You go over, and he says, oh, I love this one. This is a good tree. You look. What is this tree that's grown good fruit? He smiles at you and says, we'll keep this one. The two of you walk along and you see this one little bush and the father calls your attention to it and he says, look at this one. It's a little bit different than the others. And you can see how it's, how it's sort of poisoning the ground around it starting to affect some of the other plants. You step up, hesitantly, you're kind of nervous. And you lean in to see what it's called. Father looks at you, a compassionate smile on his face, and he says, oh, my child, I didn't plant this. He hands you a shovel, and you have the choice. It's gonna take work to dig that out. And as he hands you the shovel, he asks, are you willing to do the work? invite you to continue to just stay in that garden for as long as you need. <laughs> 